0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. On today's show, we'll look back at 2021 with my colleagues, the talented journalists who make up our news team, Kelly Knoyer, Rachel Keith, Kami Mohica, and Ashley Brown. They each have their own unique perspective on this past year, and I suppose those conversations got me reflective on what I thought about the year. It's been a difficult year, difficult to sum up, difficult to describe, although I've heard plenty of colorful attempts, like the slowest moving train wreck of all times, the radioactive dumpster fire of the apocalypse, and of course, 2020 part two, the revenge. And many of our big stories this year were carryovers, some might say hangovers, from 2022. There was, of course, the hospital sale, approved at the end of the year last year by county commissioners.
1: By joining our hospital at Novant, we are securing healthcare for generations to come. We are promising a better quality of life, more access to care, greater innovation and technology, enhanced academic experiences and less
2: health disparities. We are guaranteeing safe, high quality, cost-effective care for every person.
0: But with lingering concerns about the 1.25 billion, with a B, billion dollar community endowment, which for one thing, was set up by the county as a private entity, immune from sunshine laws and public scrutiny. Tied to the vote today is the structure of the community foundation that will be funded with $1.25 billion of taxpayer money. As the bylaws are currently written, I cannot accept putting control of that money into the hands of a private foundation. The sale of New Hanover Regional Medical Center to Navant Health was actually finalized this year. Yeah, this year after Attorney General Josh Stein cleared the sale and made a few tweaks to that $1.25 billion community endowment. That's what we heard from a lot of people in New Hanover County was they wanted to make sure that this $1.2 billion foundation served them. We negotiated a number of provisions to enhance that. But there were still questions about how, and just as importantly where, the money would be spent.
3: What we learned is that the endowment has been tasked from New Hanover County to spend that money inside New Hanover County lines, essentially. Now
1: that presents an interesting question for rural communities because half of the hospital's patient base comes from outside of New Hanover County um, and roughly
3: half the revenue does as well.
2: We're not blind to the fact that um, what happens here um, you know, overflows and the
3: other thing is I think five years from now, we don't want this to be the perfect place to live, surrounded by nothing but poverty and need.
0: And then there's masks. We've put them on and taken them off and put them on and taken them off again. And whenever the issue comes up, there's been strong support and vocal pushback.
2: While we'll continue to need to wear masks and maintain six feet of distance, lower risk settings can open further, while higher risk settings really must Maintain caution. In order to be accurate and fair to the residents of Ventura County, there should be a specific time period for reevaluation of this rule. I propose thirty-day intervals. All right. I have comparisons. Uh,
0: it home. is not a perfect solution. Terrible solution. And mask wearing alone will not end this pand- pandemic, okay. but it will.
2: It will help. I you know? uh,
0: The That's your opinion. The issue has been particularly divisive when it comes to children. That's where the science on mask wearing was the least compelling and where frustrations seem to get really intense.
2: Children, particularly younger children, continue to be less likely to get and spread COVID-19 than adults. When children do get COVID-19, most have very mild illness. Only in very rare instances have children developed severe symptoms.
0: But that's not the only tough issue facing the school board, which at one point this summer actually melted down as the passions over masks, critical race theory, school segregation, and other issues seem to boil over. They've been here for hours, some of them. Yeah. Really, you have? Yeah. yeah. you report to us. Most of the board doesn't respond to emails or phone calls.
1: Yes. Sir, you are out of order. Please maintain some level of decorum. This is not a battle zone. This is a board of education meeting.
0: there's the issue of community violence. Statistically, this year has been no more violent than past years. FBI stats show violent crime is down, although those stats don't always provide a complete picture. Still, to hear some people talk about it, including elected officials and candidates running for local office, the violence has been surging this year. In a recent interview, True Colors founder George Taylor suggested the recent attention has a lot to do with violence that's been no more severe than past years, but a lot closer to affluent white residents. For one, a brutal double homicide in his son's home. For another, a shooting in New Hanover High School where violence spilled over into the hallways this summer. Unfortunately, shootings happen all the time, especially in low-income neighborhoods, where, as District Attorney Ben David is often quick to point out, it's not just the perpetrators who are low-income minorities, but more importantly, the victims. But no shooting in the north side or off of Dawson Street has ever had the response of the shooting that happened at New Hanover High School.
1: Manager ...to access part of the, not all of it, part of whatever amount necessary, the $350 million that we have set aside to address this crisis that we have in our community.
0: With just a few words from County Chair Julia Olson Bozeman, the county was now willing to fund major efforts to address community violence with the support of longtime advocates like Judge Jay Corpening.
4: It's time to act. Please don't blink. Others have blinked. It's not time to blink, it's time to respond. Our children are killing children. Uh, it's got to stop.
0: But the county's initial plan, seemingly formulated on the fly, Lacked details and, importantly, oversight, it gave County Manager Chris Coudray unchecked spending authority. But that quickly changed, although not without tension.
2: So we're
1: hiccuping. This is what we're blinking. We're
0: stopping. This is what you want to do, Commissioner Barfield? Is that my understanding? I think I said earlier I have no intentions of blinking, no intentions of stopping. I just want to be informed every step of the way but I guess in terms of stopping. what resources that we're expending. It doesn't stop anything. Like so many other things, the community endowment, the pandemic, and its political ramifications, community violence is definitely a story we'll be following into the new year. All right, well, joining me now to look back over this, let's just say, challenging year is WHQR investigative reporter Kelly Knoyer. Kelly joined the HQR News team in April, coming all the way from Oregon. Kelly, thanks for being here. Um, man, it's uh, it's been a year.
4: Oh, yes. <laughs> it has been a year.
0: Um, so tell me a little bit about, about some of your favorite stories from this past year.
4: Okay, so I think my favorite early story that I covered was about the bus system here in Wilmington. I did like a two-part major uh, blockbuster story. Uh, and that ran on the newsroom together. And basically, it it just was about how Wave Transit has struggled historically and what it could look like in the future if it got significant funding from the proposed quarter cent sales tax. Uh, and I also was able to focus on how bus systems work in other places I've lived, what looks what it looks like for a bus system to be successful versus when it's underfunded and not treated as if it's supposed to be an amenity for the population. So that was a really interesting exploration and definitely something near and dear to my heart. We all know I am the public transit nerd in this office. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> but it was a different kind of reporting on mass transit. I mean, if you if you go back through the years, um, even my own reporting, I'm guilty of this. Uh, a lot of us have just been standing around looking at the car wreck that is wave of Transit uh, and just sort of throwing our hands up and saying, look how bad this is. So you kind of took that in a solutions direction, saying like, it's not always this bad. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, I am a sucker for a solutions story. Uh, And that's definitely something that A system can always be improved. You know, they brought in a new executive director this year, Marie Parker, who is a real mover and shaker and has some big ideas. She came out of Raleigh where they had transit uh, bonds get passed. And so they have really significant funding there and were able to create bus rapid transit routes, which is something she'd love to see implemented here in Wilmington. But it looks like that's still pretty far off in the future. But, you know, it's fun to kind of imagine what if.
0: And you got to spend some quality time on the bus. Let's take a listen.
4: Gardner drives the 301 bus for Wave Transit. It's a seven-mile round trip from the Monkey Junction Walmart to Pleasure Island and back, with service running every three hours. Gardner has worked for Wave for nearly two decades.
1: Yeah, when I started in like 2004, the
2: buses were crowded. And you had more buses running, but they didn't go out far. They were in a
0: small, little circle.
4: He's from New York and used to drive the bus there, too. Two riders heading downtown were surprised to find out that Wave won't drop any routes this summer. Although the county voted to delay service cuts, signs were still up in many buses noting the now canceled route changes. They uh, they're keeping all the same routes.
0: They were uh, going to change they it. They
4: were going to change it this summer, but they're actually going to keep it all for now. Good. And good. they might increase they might increase the frequency instead of cutting it. That's okay. awesome. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's so the information. Another story I really enjoyed, and this was when I took over the newsroom for the first time, was the Northside stories. And it was kind of about gentrification and the ways that the city has changed and the way it will continue to change as the housing crisis pushes housing costs higher and higher. So the Northside is this historically black neighborhood. Uh, It's changing really quickly now. It's gentrifying. But there's still all of these folks who have lived there for decades who remember it as a very different place from what it is now Um, and it was kind of just an exploration of the history of Wilmington in this kind of forgotten neighborhood people look at it now and they either see it as a little bit dilapidated or they say oh this is like the hipster arts district That's not really how longtime residents have viewed this neighborhood, and it's not how they continue to view it. So it was really interesting talking to historians about the role that the North Side has historically played and some of the disinvestment that happened because it was a black neighborhood. That was near and dear to my heart as well because I live in the North Side, and it's such a cool neighborhood that's changing so much. It's going to be unrecognizable in a few years, I think.
0: So you and our summer intern, Maddie Holloway, You guys hit the books, you hit the streets. It was really a lot of work for that edition of the newsroom. So let's take a little listen.
4: Maddie and I took several hours to do research at the Carolina Room of the New Hanover County Regional Library. It's where all the local history books, newspaper clippings, and other local artifacts are kept.
3: Oh, and this one was talking about doing repairs on black housing.
4: Mm. We were digging for clues. Um, How was segregation implemented in Wilmington in the past, and how has that legacy shaped Wilmington today? Well, to
3: start off, parts of the city were surprisingly integrated right after slavery ended.
1: So take it back into the 1800s, and what's interesting is that this Brooklyn community
3: was mixed. That's Cynthia Brown, the historian for St. Stephen AME Church in Brooklyn Arts District, formerly known as Brooklyn Heights.
1: It was a diverse community, and from what I understand, there was white population, African-American population, Jewish population.
4: Yeah, it was really interesting, and I think part of the reason I thought it was important was because the comprehensive plan for the city of Wilmington uh, is going to add a lot of density in the north side, and it's a good location for that to happen, because having more walkable streets is something that's really good to have close to downtown, but it means that there's these larger buildings, these big apartments, these big townhouses going up next to these older historic homes. And that's difficult for a lot of people to swallow. It's difficult for these neighbors to see what looks like investment in some properties and not in others. And then seeing certain streets getting treated in a specific way, because maybe there's a lot of new white neighbors there compared to what was there in the past. Uh, but it 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 does seem like the city is interested in investing in the north side eventually. They put a plan together in 2004 where they were going to try and improve it, make it so that it was a more walkable street. But really, a grocery store is going to be the thing that makes a big difference up there.
0: Yeah. I mean, w- when you talk to longtime residents, they, they'll always talk about the A&P. that used to be. And you kind of gauge you know, how long someone's really been in the neighborhood by whether or not they remember being there.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So m- more recently, I think uh, we can't really not talk about the Wilmington Housing Authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been a big one. Um, you know, your your work kind of drove the bus on this. Um, you know, I it, it's been recent enough. I think people remember what's going on. Let's talk a little bit about what we still need to dig into.
4: Oh, man. Well, for those who don't recall, the Wilmington Housing Authority has a severe mold crisis going on. Hundreds, m- well, more than 100 families are out of their homes right now because they have severe mold that is encroaching in their homes. And so they're living in hotel rooms. Uh, we're still following how long people are going to be out of their homes, and it looks like it could be at least a year before this is resolved. I guess in the long term, what we're kind of looking at is how on earth this happened. Some of the leadership that's left the Wilmington Housing Authority, we have a lot of questions for them, and accountability. I mean, what can be done to hold people accountable who have now abandoned this institution after driving it into the ground?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I can say there's a there's a great big stay tuned on that one. Yes. <laughs> okay, so what else are you looking maybe less depressing, what else are you looking forward to in twenty twenty two?
4: Uh, I think that the housing bond story is going to be a major one to follow. Uh, we've been following it since I got here in April. I've been here less than a year, but it's uh, it's been a major element of my coverage of the city and the county. So, the housing bond and the uh, public transportation sales tax that I mentioned earlier, the quarter cent sales tax, those are both potentially going to end up on the ballot for next year for the election, but we're still waiting to see whether the county is going to vote both of those through or not. Uh, It's become more controversial more recently when it previously seemed like a shoo-in. So that'll be one to follow, especially early in the next year. And then if they do get on the ballot, or if one of them gets on the ballot, we'll closely follow whether it's going to be successful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know this would be the culmination of at least five years Mm -hmm. of uh, a lot of false starts, a lot of committees, a lot of subcommittees. So, I'm I'm curious to see, you know, it put in the hands of the people and just. You don't see how they vote.
4: Yeah. I mean, housing is at nearly a crisis point in Wilmington. I've seen housing that's truly in a crisis in Oregon, in Portland. I mean, if you have any friends who have ever visited Oregon, I'm sure they've told you about the homelessness crisis that is there. And it's because the housing shortage is so severe. We're expecting to have a deficit of 10,000 homes for the neediest people in Wilmington in the next 10 years. And that to me, sounds like a brewing crisis. So it'll be very interesting to see if that gets addressed in the next year or not.
0: All right. Well, Kelly Kinoyer thanks so much for being with us. But before we go, I, I really don't think we can end this segment without talking about probably your finest journalistic work of the last year.
4: Yes, absolutely. I went and covered a little garden story at the Arboretum, and I got to have the best journalistic experience of my life in putting together a lovely audio story about a rain garden that involves Plinko, and it's just my favorite sound of all time. Let's play the clip. Learning is often better with a game, and that's certainly true when it comes to native plants. So, Wilmington's booth at the Native Plant Festival was complete with plinko. Yeah, all right. <laughs> See where it lands. Alrighty. Rain garden. So, what okay. is a rain garden?
0: <laughs> I love that little plinkity plinkity plinkity.
4: <laughs> it's just a delight when you can put together a story that sounds really charming, and this was that story for me.
0: And sometimes you need a break from the heavy stuff.
4: You do. You do. And we have a lot of it here.
0: And we have a lot of it here. (laughs) And we'll have a lot of it next year. All right. Kelly Kinoyer, thank you so much.
4: Thanks, Ben. All
0: right. Well, we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll catch up with WHQR reporter Rachel Keith, who has covered everything from intimate profiles to school board shenanigans. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Later on today's show, we'll hear from the latest additions to the HQR Newsroom, Cammy Mojica and Ashley Brown. But right now, someone who's been a part of this team for a long time, Rachel Keith. You'll be familiar with her voice as a host of All Things Considered, but she's worn a lot of hats from UNCW fellow to Coastline producer, and she's now really settling into her role as reporter. Rachel, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Ben.
0: So it's been a year Yes. <laughs> it's been quite a year. And I wanted to talk about, you know, some of the pieces that have really stuck with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know one of those has to be the the story of Jeremy Owens.
1: Yes. The story of Jeremy Owens. Um, he took his life last November. So it's been close to a, a year. And I went to the Wrightsville Beach Ocean Rescue tryouts in May. And I knew that they were going to dedicate the upcoming summer season to him and they had named their junior lifeguarding camp after him and I just wanted to view the the scene who came out what they were going to say about him and I was just really proud of this story because it showed how much he affected the community. And I was very lucky to actually talk to his mom and his dad. They were there and they gave me such candid interviews. I really wasn't expecting that. So she remembered when he first tried out a long time ago. And then he t- she talked to me about his death.
0: And that's a really difficult topic. I mean, it's never fun to talk about someone passing away, but when someone takes their own life. It's incredibly difficult. And, you know, we struggle a little bit with a decision about whether or not to include um, this quote. You want to listen to it right now?
1: Yeah, let's go ahead. One of the warning signs, according to the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, is calling people to say goodbye. Jeremy did that with some of his friends and his mom before he died.
2: And he said, Mom, I want you to know how much I love you. And I'm coming home today, I'll see you tonight. Okay, I'll see you tonight. He said, Mom, I don't think I'm gonna make it this time. I said, Jeremy, you hang on, we're gonna make it. It's going to be okay, we're gonna make it. He said, no, Mom, what I want you to know is that I'm at peace now. That was the best gift he could give me.
0: So that's obviously, that's Jeremy's mother talking about him and you know, what was some of the concerns you had about including this?
1: Yeah, it was really it was really powerful and he said goodbye to her and she was at peace. I know that she's not, you know, she misses him every day and she's making mental health a priority in her life that we should all be kind to one another because we never know the impact of our words. But it was a really hard it was such a heartfelt thing that she shared with me and that I ultimately shared with the community that we have to move on, unfortunately, when our, they're always with us, but when our loved ones pass away.
0: Yeah, and of course, we didn't want to, you know, valorize or encourage anyone to, you know, do anything that would be like self-harm, but at the same time, we wanted to be true to the story, and and I think you were.
1: Thank you, and I think it gave her closure um, to some degree, and, you know, but she's still out there. She misses him every day. I remember when she said she couldn't listen to music for such a long time, but, His loss is deeply felt by his parents and then people in the community.
0: Yeah, well, it was it was a great piece, I thought, and um, a little bit of, um, you know, a change of pace from you. Uh, It was sort of a more intimate profile type piece. So uh, and you won an award for it.
1: That's right. Yeah. Second in the community uh, group.
0: Well, congratulations on that. So another story uh, or series of stories that you reported on that was also difficult, but for very different reasons was your investigative piece on Cape Fear Community College. Uh, if, I don't know how listeners would have missed this, but if you missed this, give them a little elevator synopsis.
1: Yeah, the way we, had, we were able to do this story was that the vice president and the secretary, now they've left the college, left those positions, gave us on the record interviews about uh, their experience working at the college and then working with this faculty climate survey that didn't get released to the public. And there were other issues with the staff and faculty handbook where there was a line that was taken out that the president cannot We don't know if you're able to file a grievance against the president. It was in there before. It's not there now. And we don't have any record or knowledge of how you would do one going forward. They still haven't answered us. So Chardon Murray and Suzanne Baker gave us those on record interviews and that gave legs to the story. We also did a lot of public records requests. And we just looked into the college and their transparency measures and, and a lot of the board members did not talk to us. We, they only one, Jimmy Hopkins, talked to us after the fact. So and that was a problem when this hostile work environment, alleged hostile work environment, was broke by ECT, WECT in 2020. So I kind of picked up where they left off and found that a lot of it seemingly had not changed.
0: Or it had gotten worse.
1: Yes, or it had gotten worse, yes.
0: I think, you know, and, and of course, Charlotte Murray and Susan were from the Faculty Association, and they were really at the crux of this. They were the ones, you know, hearing from, you know, uh, teachers and staff that maybe wouldn't go on record with the media but were talking to them as their representatives. So they were really sort of forced to represent those people to the board. And, we, you know, what we were hearing from people is that the board seemed, you know, not that interested. And um, this is a quote from your interview with Shardon with marie which I, I thought really showed you that this wasn't about, you know, petty workplace grievances. And that's something people often say with this kind of story, like, oh, you know, people just don't like their workplace. Uh, I felt like you really got her to speak from the heart here. Let's listen to that real quick.
1: This community deserves better. It just does. Our students deserve better because this affects everybody. And it's not just faculty being whiny. We also know that on several occasions, President Morton has said he didn't want the release of this faculty survey because of COVID. And at this last, at the September Board of Trustees meeting, I was there and the Board of Trustees members, Dolores Rhodes and Jonathan Barfield were were pushing him to do this survey and he seemed defensive about it. But ultimately toward the end, it looked like he was going to do it at the next November board meeting. He spent maybe a minute on it. So we really don't know what that's going to look like. I've had staff contact me and say if it's a survey monkey and not a third party independent survey that they might not trust that.
0: Yeah. So one we'll have to watch, Um, but at the very least, I think getting some of those complaints out from behind closed doors, um, you know, I know it was tough for those people that you were able to get to go on the record. But uh, I think it's better to be in the open. Sunshine is a good disinfectant is what people say.
1: It is. And in 2022, we are looking forward to whatever this college comes up with for this climate survey and what will be the results and compare that to the results that we released through public records request from the faculty climate survey in 2020.
0: So that was uh an investigative piece. I mean, that was something where you felt or, or we felt as a newsroom that this was a big story that no one was going after. Uh but you in addition to that, you have a regular beat. Uh you cover the New Hanover County School District, uh which is no easy task.
1: That's right. It is not.
0: Yeah, a lot of late nights, a lot of long meetings. Um if listeners who are who have followed along with the school district know, uh you need to pack a lunch and a dinner and maybe <laughs> a snack to get through some of these meetings. Um and it's you know, I, I think this has been, you know, we say this every year, but I think this might actually be the most contentious time in school districts. We've got all the things that you've covered, uh, debates over COVID closures, debates over masks, debates over critical race theory and what uh, conservative factions in North Carolina call indoctrination. So the indoctrination thing is one you've looked you know, particularly close at. Um, and it's a tough issue.
1: It is. Um, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson released this really large report about indoctrination in North Carolina public schools. And I read through this and they were upholding Brunswick County as kind of uh, a place where they are pushing back on the supposed teaching of critical race theory by specifically outlawing that teaching unless they get some type of waiver. And then I also went to New Hanover County Schools, and they said, we do not teach this, and if you feel like we are, then you need to go through the proper uh, chain of command to to say that you've seen something. And I also got to talk to a veteran history teacher, St- Stephen Jones. He works at Hoggard High School, and I thought here he gave such a poignant answer to why why one should care about the teaching of history and not to say that conservatives say they don't want to teach history the way it is. Uh, Senator Phil Berger has said that we're not shying away from that. It's just that we don't want critical race, imper- critical race theory to impact the view of history through that. But let's hear it. Let's listen to Stephen Jones.
0: I like students to think freely as possible. So the way I teach, I, I mean, I you know, I mean, I love this country, I, and I don't really know an educator who doesn't. But a historian really isn't worth their weight if they don't strive to be honest about history. And that means discussing those things that makes America exceptional, but it also means delving into those low moments, you know, warts and all. Yeah, and I think Jones here is speaking to people who just, you know, they say the past is the past. They don't understand or they say they don't understand why we need to go back and revisit these dark chapters in United States history, uh, some of which are, you know, shockingly recent. You know, we're not always talking about uh, 1619. Sometimes we're talking about the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s. So I I think that's what he's speaking to. And I'm I'm glad you got that on tape, basically. Yes. Uh, And, of course, you know— It's not just the schools. The school board is a constant source of news stories, (laughs) let's say. Yes. Uh, And, you know, it's obviously there. I want to, you know, front load this and and say that they are under basically unprecedented pressures because of all these things that we're talking about. But it, it hasn't always been a unified front there.
1: Yes. And we had in the December meeting the election of the new chair, and that is Stephanie Craybill. And the vice chair is now Stephanie Walker. And here is Stephanie Craybill talking about trying to leave the contentious nature of their meetings behind them in 2022.
3: I know that we as a board um are going to disagree and we're going to have to debate issues before making decisions and setting policy but i don't want us to be disagreeable as we do that so um, i'm going to work really hard and um, stephanie's going to work really hard with me um, to do that so that we can be professional and supportive of each other um, knowing that we have the opportunity now and the responsibility to model good behavior that's um, for our students and our staff and our communities. So um, it will be a challenge, but we we are up for it.
0: And this is, of course, a a board that has seen, you know, infighting. It's also seen meetings completely collapse due to the utterly chaotic behavior of the the audience. Um, It's been a tough time. I I do hope that they uh, can find enough common ground to run the school district because keep in mind, on top of you know, indoctrination and masks and COVID and, you know, and the, the transgender uh, athletics considerations. On top of all of that, there's still a school district to run. There's still multiple lawsuits. I mean, there's a lot. Um, and speaking of all that, uh, I know you'll be covering the school district into 2022. What are some of the things you're looking forward to?
1: Yeah, so I followed earlier in the year the development of the Title IX survey, and those results should be out in the new year, so I'm looking forward to that. They also did their own climate survey for the staff and for the teachers, so those results will be out. I'm interested to see what they say. I covered two teacher assistance rallies, and they are asking for a $17 an hour minimum wage. and. Dr. Faust, is the superintendent of New Hanover County Schools, is saying this will have to be a local ask if they're going to get that. Uh, According to the most recent New Hanover County Commission meeting on the 20th of December, they said they're probably not going to increase that per student uh, $3,500 that they established last year. They're not going to use that as a base going forward is what they've said.
0: It might even go down.
1: Yes. And I know that Dr. Faust said that he also had commissioned a salary study and that he said will be due out in February. So that will be interesting to see what what those results come back as. So and then we also know that they have about eighty four million dollars in federal relief money that we don't know how they're going to spend going forward. So how will they spend that in the new year? And Again, going back to Craybill's uh, moving forward decree, we'll say, um, will that play out in 2022? Will we see the members disagree amicably? That will be something that that I will be watching for, because I think the public has a hard time following different points of view when they're just picking at each other and using ad hominem attacks instead of actually debating the issues.
0: Yeah. And of course, you just had a three part series on um, opioids in our area, including some questions about how things are going with the healing place. I know that's uh, a story you'll be following in the new year and uh, and all the stuff that we can't see coming yet.
1: That's right. We're ready.
0: All right. Well, Rachel Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right, well, we need to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll catch up with the newest members of the WHQR News team, Cami Mohika and Ashley Brown. We'll ask them about some of the stories they've been working on, what they're looking forward to in the new year, and as recent transplants to the Wilmington area, how they feel about our city. Plus, we'll have a special thank you to all of the journalists from other news outlets around the KFA region who collaborated with us over this year. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Please stay with us. To the Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Over the last year the WHQR news team has changed a lot. We've said goodbye to some really talented colleagues but we've also been able to welcome two new reporters. Ashley Brown who we'll talk to a little later in this segment and Kami Mohica who joined us in November from Long Island New York. Kami hasn't been here long but she's already been able to make an impact. Cami, thanks for being with us and thanks for taking the job.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So you haven't been here that long but you've been busy. So tell us about some of the stories you've been working on.
3: So I've worked on a few stories talking about where money in the county and the city is, where it's going. Um, A lot of federal assistance with ARPA money. Um, And I have also talked to nonprofits around the city of Wilmington, seeing what they're doing and what they're doing for the community, that kind of stuff.
0: All right. And you've also been looking at um, I guess what we should call a community violence efforts by the county. Yes. So break this down. If people haven't been following this, what is this?
3: So, they rolled out a plan of how they were going to spend 89 million dollars to protect kids in schools and also curb community violence. So, it was a plan to basically reinforce schools, add, you know, security officers into schools, make sure that the The kids are safe starting there, and then go out into the community with different types of services to help provide stability and try and curb, you know, violence as a community. So that was the plan.
0: That was the plan, but it didn't, the plan changed a little bit.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So the plan was rolled out, and then the board of commissioners was like, whoa, how are you going to spend this money? And the county manager was like, Oh, I, I already I have everything laid out. This is how I'm gonna spend the money. And some of the members of the board were like, Let's put a pin in that and actually have to approve the money that you're going to spend. Um, and then they came out with these steps of how they were going to actually implement the program. Um, But it's very confusing (laughs) and things kind of like bleed into one another where there's not really like a set step one, step two, step three. Although it says that on the presentation, everything like kind of bleeds together. So there's no like, how are we actually going to implement this?
0: yeah I you think know, I think some people in the public and on the board of commissioners had kind of hoped to see more of a line item budget and less of a series of vague buckets yes, yes yeah uh, so is that one you'll be watching in the coming year?
3: Yes, it is. I really want to see not just where the money actually goes um, but I also want to see what happens in the community like is does this actually make a difference um Are the people in the community that are in the line of fire, basically, are they happy with this program? Do they think it's going to work? Do they think it's going to do anything? Um, And I also want to see how it affects the schools and how it affects kids in New Hanover County.
0: That's a big one. I know we've heard uh, from a number of parents who have some concerns of turning schools into, uh, I don't know, armored fortresses.
3: Yeah, yeah, they talked about hardscaping schools, which basically means they would put fences around schools and metal detectors, you know, armed security officers, school security officers is what they're calling them. Um, and people just don't seem to be happy with that as a solution because it feels like, you know, I was talking to one of my friends about this and he was like, it feels like they're treating the symptoms rather than actually going to the root of the problem and solving that.
0: I have heard uh, similar things from other public leaders, so that's gonna be one we're gonna have to watch. Yes. For sure. Um, All right, so before I let you go, uh, you, like me, are a Yankee down here from up north. (laughs) Uh, What do you think of Wilmington?
3: I really like it. The pace of living here is very, very different. Um, I'm not a city girl. In all of its glory, but I basically grew up in the city um, on weekends and my family, half of my family's in Queens. So coming to Wilmington has been interesting, but in a good way. And people are very nice down here. And so, you know, I'm getting called darling and baby all the time and I'm like, ah.
0: I will say I get the finger less here than I got in New York City.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, Cameo Mojica, look forward to more work from you in 2022. Thanks so much for coming by.
3: Thank you very much. I'm very excited.
0: All right. All right. Last, but most certainly not least, our community fellow and reporter, Ashley Brown. Ashley comes to us from Houston. Uh, like Kelly Connoyer and Cammie Mojica, Ashley Brown made uh, quite a trip to come to Wilmington all the way from Texas. And we are grateful to have her, Ashley Thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me, Ben.
0: So you've been here since the summer and you've been covering the city of Wilmington, right?
2: Yes, I have.
0: And how has that been?
2: That has been very interesting because I'm new to covering, you know, anything dealing with the city. But you learn a lot about how things work in your city, like how government funding you know, goals and how they go about building new restaurants, building new apartments and different things that you never knew. The outside looking in, we're just like, oh, they're building all this stuff or they're making these decisions. But when you really research and start reporting on it, you learn how everything works.
0: So in addition to covering uh, City of Wilmington business, uh, you've also done some feature pieces. You did a great one on breast cancer. Uh, What was it like hearing those people's stories?
2: The breast cancer story was very challenging because when you do human interest stories like that, especially on sensitive topics, you never know what world, you know, your interviewees will go into because you're bringing up you know, old feelings, you know, they having to relive those moments when they first experienced being diagnosed with breast cancer. So as I was doing the interviews, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know if during an interview, you know, they might get emotional and decide, okay, I can't tell this story, you know, is, is bringing back so much pain, But I'm glad I did it because I learned a lot for myself and I was able to tell their stories.
0: Uh, Another another topic you've covered this year that I thought was really interesting was the story of the Northside Food Co-op. And you've been covering this for a while. What's going on there?
2: So with the Northside Food Co-op, they're trying to start. Well, not start. They're trying to open a supermarket, well, a grocery store on the north side of downtown Wilmington because they've been without a grocery store for Over 30 years. And so a lot of the people that are on that side of town, you know, they're low income. They don't have transportation and they don't have access to fresh food and vegetables. Like the nearest store is a family dollar. You're not going to get fresh food. You're not going to get the nutritious things that you need out of family dollar. So the Northside Food Co-op, they opened Frankie's Market so that the residents on that side can get that access to local farmers and their fruits and produce and so that's very important because these people they're they're struggling that's that's basically what's going on and so I feel like you know we're leaving them behind we not being able to get access to a grocery store a grocery store like most of us have these people they don't have that so that's a really you know interesting topic that I really like covering because those, those are the problems that we have in the world, not even just here in Wilmington. You know, hunger is a big issue in the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's almost the end of the year. By the time this airs, it'll be, I believe it'll be New Year's Eve. Uh, so what are you looking at to cover in 2022?
2: So 2022, hopefully I'm able to cover more community stories. You know, since starting, you know, doing my community coverage, you know, I've really like learning about this community here in in Wilmington you know I've learned so much about this community you know before moving here I've never heard of Wilmington North Carolina so coming here and it's a really good community and you learn so much and even the people that live here there's so much that they don't know about their own community so hopefully I'm able to do more stories to make people aware of what Wilmington has to offer them
0: well, we're glad you're here to cover those stories. Uh, before we let you go, um, you know, you've been here for a while. What are, your, what are your thoughts on Wilmington?
2: You know, Wilmington is different, you know, coming from a big city like Houston to a small city like Wilmington. I've learned a lot about myself, you know, being away from family, not knowing anyone here. I'm here by myself. So I've gained a new level of independence. You know, I'm learning a new city. And with learning a new city, you learn, you know, their way of life. Here being on the East Coast, which is definitely different from Texas. But Wilmington has offered me a lot. It is a beautiful city, especially with all the water and the beaches. So I'm loving Wilmington so far.
0: Well, we're glad to hear it. I'm glad to have you. Ashley Brown, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you, Ben.
0: All right. Okay, well, before we end this year-end edition of the newsroom, there are a few other people we should mention. The journalists who have collaborated with us here at WHQR throughout the year. It's no secret that local journalism is imperiled. As my old boss at Port City Daily, Tom Davis, once told me, unless we start doing something new and fast, local news is, well, let's just say it's in trouble. I don't have all the answers but I'm pretty sure that whatever the way forward for local news is, it involves collaborations. That's been one of my main takeaways from my conversations with Shannon Bowen, who runs the NC Local News Workshop, something you'll be hearing more about in the next year. But for now, let's just say we're trying to save local news by tearing down some of the walls that, for a long time, have isolated news outlets instead of letting them work together. So in that spirit, I've got some year-end gratitude to share. My thanks to Johanna Still, who you heard at the beginning of his program talking about whether or not the $1.25 billion Community Foundation was leading behind rural communities. Joe and I work together at Port City Daily, and I look forward to more good work from her at her new gig at the Wilmington Business Journal, and we hope to have her back on the show soon. Thanks to Preston Lennon, who's always game to break down a complicated story over a drink. This year he shared his in depth reporting on beach renourishment with us and joined us for our Reporters' Roundtable to break down the 2020 municipal election. Also thanks to fellow Port City Daily journalist Alex Sands Williams, who appeared on the first edition of the Newsroom and has been turning out dogged work on the education system, and we hope to have her on again soon. Thanks to Carolina Public Press's Jordan Wilkie, who has been covering, among other things, the North Carolina criminal justice system and attempts to reform it, and he's always happy to share that work with us. Thanks to Star News reporter John Staton for sharing his behind-the-scenes look at how Wilmington's Confederate statues came down and former Star News alum Scott Nunn, who will be contributing to WHQR on a regular basis as a freelance reporter. Scott knows this city better than a lot of people, and it's just a fact. A lot of newsrooms struggle with keeping institutional knowledge alive, so we're glad to be able to tap into Scott's. Kevin Maurer, a freelance journalist who also works at Cape Fear Collective, was a major part of our investigative series into the mold crisis at the Wilmington Housing Authority. But he also helped us with the profile of Creekwood and an upcoming project on Houston Moore. In fact, we hope to do a lot more work together. And thanks to our media partners at WECT, Brad Myers for keeping the door open, John Evans for appearing on the first edition of the Newsroom, Ashley Kazakowski for sharing her insights into the legal system with me and helping me take on the Wilmington Police Department to get some pretty important video revealed, Ann McAdams for helping us tell the story of Cape Fear Community College, and my friend, Fran Weller, for coming on the show and opening up about her experiences in the journalism business. Thank you for helping us take things to the next level. And of course, thanks to my longtime colleague, friend of the show, and co-podcaster, Michael Pratz. You can catch much more from us on our podcast, Port City Politics, in the new year, and our new year special is out now. All right. That's just about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. My thanks again to WHQR's news team, Rachel Keith, Kelly Kinoyer, Ashley Brown, and Cami Mojica, and our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. Thanks also to Rachel Lewis-Hilburn, who has set a very high bar for producing an hour-long show and always lets me bounce ideas off of her, and Doc Jarden, who helped create The Newsroom and continues to be a force for journalistic good. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show in 2022, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. And I hope you'll join us next year for the next edition of The Newsroom.